His words are concerning redeeming the time. From verse 16, which reads, Redeeming the time because the days are evil. So at this time, we'll turn it over to Brother Paul. Good morning, my dear. Can everybody hear me okay? Good morning, my dear brothers and sisters, young people, and friends of the truth. It is a pleasure for my family and I to be with you this weekend and to take part in this gathering and to have opportunity to be with so many of like precious faith. I bring with me the fraternal love and well wishes of the brothers and sisters of the Mountain Grove Ecclesia in Burlington, Ontario. It is indeed a privilege to stand before you this morning, and I would like to thank the brethren of the Orlando Ecclesia for their continued efforts in putting together this annual gathering each year as it continues to be a source of great encouragement and strength in these remaining days wherein we patiently await our Lord and Master's return. As Brother Ed had said, the theme for our gathering this weekend, as we know, is taken from the fifth chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ecclesia in Ephesus at verses 15 through 17, which reads, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. I have been asked to focus my remarks on the exhortation given in the 16th verse, hence the title for what we would like to share this morning, Redeem the Time, which hopefully will be mutually edifying and uplifting. And I also took the same posture as our brother Bob and thought that it would be helpful for us before we commence to consider this verse in specific and just review some contextual background to the Apostle's words in these verses. As we saw earlier, history records that the city of Ephesus, although today but a collection of ruins frequented primarily by tourists, was at the time of the Apostle Paul at the height of its prosperity. As was mentioned, it was one of the most prominent cities in the Roman Empire, It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia and was a major center of commerce. Along with the city of Smyrna, which lay to the north, it was known as one of the eyes of Asia. Situated geographically in a key position, as we earlier heard, along main first century trade routes, its port was a thriving commercial hub attracting many people from around the empire. The prevailing philosophical thought of the day and pagan religious belief found a welcome ear in Ephesus. The city was renowned for its massive amphitheater, as we saw uh, very graphically a picture of earlier. But its most notable feature was the massive temple dedicated, as we saw, to the worship of the pagan goddess Diana. We will recall mention in the 19th of Acts of Demetrius, a man of Ephesus, whose silversmith trade, which involved the crafting of statues of Diana, was in jeopardy of suffering loss because Paul's preaching of the one true and living deity, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, showed the fallacy of worshiping that which was made by the hands of man. 
Like most modern affluent cities of its day, Ephesus was not only steeped in pagan idolatry and superstition, its residents were dedicated to the pursuit of those things which appeal to the flesh. This was noted by Paul in the fourth chapter of the letter at verses 17 through 19, where he encourages the believers to henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. This was the environment to which he, as the apostle to the Gentiles, labored to foster and maintain the good news, the things concerning the kingdom of the deity and the name of Jesus anointed. We know from the 18th chapter of Acts at the 19th verse that Paul introduced the truth to those of the city of Ephesus during what we commonly refer to as his second journey. And he later remained with them there, as we read in Acts 20, verse 31, for a period of three years. We know also that young Timothy supported Paul in his efforts in Ephesus, and it was he in whom, as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul vested the responsibility to remain with the ecclesia in his absence and labor to maintain the purity of the truth that had been delivered to them and accepted. On his last journey, as we read in Acts 20, Paul called for the elders of the Ecclesia so that he could offer them one final word of exhortation, salted with warning. As he says in verses 28 through 31 of Acts 20, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And also of your own self shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch, and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn you, every one, day and night, with tears." We will touch on this verse in a few moments when we speak more directly to our subject, but this anticipatory tone of the Apostle, I believe, is the tenor of the 16th verse of the 5th chapter of his letter to the Ecclesia. In regards to the letter itself, and in the interest in time, just uh, as a note in passing, we won't be able to read all of the verses that we make reference to. Uh, we just wouldn't have time for that. But I would encourage you to, in your free time, as you uh, have occasion, to look a little bit closer at the letter to the Ephesians and specifically this fifth chapter from which our theme verses are taken. Because I think it illustrates to us the wonderful and inextricable link between doctrine and walk. Of course, the one being uh, based on and an outworking of the other. In regards to the letter itself, and as we have said, we will be spending the uh, majority of our time here in our class this morning in Ephesians, it was written while Paul endured the bonds of imprisonment in Rome in about the year A.D. 62. The letter to the Ecclesia in Ephesus sets out for us 
I would submit very critical foundational doctrinal principles, the rehearsal of which were intended to serve as both a reminder and an exhortation to those who had with gladness received and accepted the gospel message. In the second chapter, we are reminded by the apostle that prior to baptism, we, like they, were under condemnation to death, alienated by virtue of our racial inheritance from Adam. Upon public profession of our faith through immersion into Christ, we have been freed from the power of that condemnation, as Paul makes abundantly clear in the eighth chapter of the letter to the Romans. Having thus been freed from condemnation, no longer under the constitution of sin, but now with Christ as our federal head, we are partakers of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and thus under the constitution of righteousness. As a new creature in Christ, we are exhorted, therefore, in the 10th verse, and also in, that's the 10th verse of the second chapter of Ephesians, and also in the second chapter of Paul's epistle to Titus, at the 14th verse, to be a peculiar people, a peculiar people zealous of good works. We are still, however, as Paul goes to great lengths to make clear in the seventh chapter of Romans, and as we each one of us can attest to, prone to the committing of transgressional sin because of what Paul styles as the law of sin in our members. It is, however, through the grace of Yahweh that we can approach him in prayer, through Christ as our advocate, to seek forgiveness for our failings and shortcomings. The Ephesian believers were reminded that they, like ourselves being Gentiles, were prior to baptism, as is so plainly enunciated for us in the 12th verse of the second chapter, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. However, having come into Christ through baptism, we have been made nigh by his blood. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, the price of redemption was paid through the precious blood of Christ, through which by grace we have, as we are reminded in Romans 5, verse 9, attained unto justification. Paul continues to remind the brethren of their privileged status before Yahweh as that which appears as a mystery or a secret to the uninitiated masses of humanity is not so with us. We who are Gentiles have been separated from the body of mankind by divine election and have been through adoption called to be heirs of that which was ratified by Christ's sacrificial death, the everlasting covenant. As believers in the one hope, the Ephesians were urged to make every effort, as are we, to walk worthy of that high and heavenly calling. We are enjoined as new creatures in Christ to walk in newness of life and are commissioned also to offer up acceptable spiritual sacrifice to Yahweh which is, as Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, our reasonable service, or we may say a natural outcome of our heeding of the word of truth. We, like those to whom the letter was addressed, must each, through the process of continual self-examination and prayer, 
strive to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as the Apostle Paul tells those in Philippi. For it is good which, for it is God which worketh in you that is in us, both to do both to his to will and to do his good pleasure. Let us not be mistaken, brothers and sisters, as we discuss these matters. We do not suggest that we can earn our salvation. Certainly we pray that mercy and grace will be extended to us when we approach the Bema in appearance before Christ as the righteous judge to give account of ourselves. But until that appointed time arrives, we are each individually urged to put forth an unwavering effort in a manner of life that exemplifies, as Paul tells the believers in Ephesus, that Christ is in us, which, as we have said, is based upon and an outworking of a proper doctrinal discernment, as Paul is trying to remind the believers in Ephesus, a proper doctrinal discernment of the Spirit Word. In the fifth chapter from which the uh, theme verses for our gathering this weekend are taken. At verses 1 through 10, and in the interest of time, we don't have uh, time to read these, but Paul brings to the fore for us here the antagonism which exists between the outworking of the carnal mind or the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit. He describes this mutually opposing relationship as darkness versus light. We are exhorted to conduct ourselves in love, a true agape love, a concern for the eternal well-being of our brothers and sisters, because as we are reminded, Yahweh hath loved us in that he gave his only begotten Son, who in love for us and to fulfill that which was his commission, he gave himself for us. This we read in the second verse. We are told, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice of God for a sweet-smelling savor. The apostle harks back to that under the Mosaic order, wherein under the law it was required that an acceptable animal sacrifice be presented without spot nor blemish, and as a sacrifice for sin was to be slain upon the altar. As we know, these were typical of the redemptive work of Christ, who in his character was neither with spot nor blemish. He was not barred by the works of darkness, yet he realized he was fully cognizant of his responsibility to represent a fallen race as one who was in also himself in need of repair of mortality, and thus he willingly gave himself as the ultimate covering for sin. Christ yielded not to the inclinations that shackle this sin nature of ours, of which he partook. The manner of his death and that which was accomplished thereby was considered in the sight of the Father as an acceptable sacrifice, which typically arose unto him as a sweet-smelling savor. It stands then, brothers and sisters, that if one who is in covenant relationship and cognizant of these principles chooses to take part in those things noted by the apostle as characterizing darkness, such an individual, who we may say is devoid of the mind of Christ, will, as Paul says, have no inheritance 
in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Rather, we as children of light are to exemplify the fruit of the Spirit, or the fruit of light, goodness, righteousness, and to do so, as he says, in truth, or we may say in a full discernment and acceptance of the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather we are exhorted to reprove them. Darkness, as exemplified in the works of the flesh, is opposed to that which is light, the outworking of which, that is light, is elaborated upon as the fruits of the Spirit, as we are all aware of, as Paul nominates in Galatians chapter 5. Again, the Apostle stresses there is no room for variance or middle ground. We either stand on the side of darkness or on the side of light. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man is incapable of receiving the things of the Spirit. For this goes against the natural tendency to indulge the carnal mind. In contrast, the true servants of Yahweh, having come under the influence of the word, are called upon to exhibit humility and self-abasement. To walk in the light, then, is to walk after the example, to emulate that which we read of in the example of our Lord and Master Christ Jesus. We read in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, that is through baptism, we shall also be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We, brothers and sisters, are to manifest to those both within and without the household of faith, our character, our transformed mind, patterned after Christ, through righteousness, or we might say the fruits of the Spirit. In the daily and continued transformation, then, of our minds, through the influence of the Spirit word as a light unto our path, we are, each one of us, being molded. We are being molded and shaped, brothers and sisters, as vessels fit for the Master's use. The development of our character now, in this time which we have left until our Lord's return, the development of our character now speaks to that which will be of use to the deity in the age to come. It must be our present desire to live by the principles upon which the kingdom of the deity will be established. Brother Thomas offers the following thoughts in regards to this which I think is worth our consideration when he writes in Elpis Israel, when the mental disposition called the heart is renewed, it becomes a mirror, as it were, in which one skilled in the word of the kingdom can discern the spirit or behold a reflection of the divine nature. The image of God and a man's character can only be created by the word of the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. And then set some, we might say, contextual background to Paul's exhortation to us in this 16th verse. How we, may we then, brothers and sisters, living nearly 1950 years later, follow the same inspired admonition to redeem the time? Of course, these things of which we are speaking are as much an exhortation to myself as hopefully they will be to you. 
There are a number of ways that we could choose to address the injunction of the apostle, and I would like to offer for your consideration uh, just three, three areas. Firstly, a recognition, a recognition on our part of our privileged position. Secondly, our role or our duty as stewards, or we may say custodians and ambassadors. And finally, the need, the vital need on our part for watchfulness. As we consider these three areas, and as I've said, there, there are many more which we could speak to, uh, we will notice that they are all interrelated. Addressing then the, the first area of consideration, our privileged position, a recognition of our privileged position as those who have come into the marvelous light of the gospel as brothers and sisters in Christ. As revealed in his spirit word, it, it is, as we have stated, the intent of Yahweh as the supreme architect to be glorified in his creation. As we will recall from the familiar passage of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, where we read, For the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. That which he has purposed with the earth and mankind, he has undertaken, as we are told, in the 36th chapter of Ezekiel, and you don't have to turn to that, but in the 36th chapter of Ezekiel at verses 22 and 23, he has done this, he is doing this, he is working with mankind. His creative purpose is such that his holy name may be sanctified. This is to be accomplished by means of what we as Christadelphians refer to as the doctrine of God manifestation. This has been the intent of the Almighty since the inception of the world, despite that which transpired in Eden. As we know, the first man, Adam, endowed with free will, having the potential for fellowship with the deity, chose to forsake that potential by disobedience through transgression of the one law that was placed upon him. Although spared from immediate judgment and death by a temporary covering which necessitated the shedding of blood, our first parents and all their posterity were perpetually consigned to mortality, corruption, and ultimately death. That is what is, befalls mankind in the absence of an understanding of what God has revealed in his word of his plan and purpose. Death, that which our brother Bob spoke a little bit about this morning. The supreme increate in his mercy then has resolved, however, to not throw aside his creation and his avowed intent to be glorified and gain pleasure from his creation and thus put in place a plan of reconciliation by which that relationship could be restored and the breach mended. The means by which this is to be achieved is seen in Jesus, who as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the seed of promise, he who died for himself, first and then ourselves, he born of a woman, and as the progeny of Adam, an inheritor of that same condemned nature, he overcame and yielded not, as we know, to its inclinations. As a representative man, he would be the operative means by which fallen man will be reconciled back to the deity. We are told in John 1, verses 1 and 2, that which we might say befuddles the world around us who are would open their word and try and come to a, an understanding of the message contained therein. It is not a mystery for us, brothers and sisters. We are plainly told in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. 
The wisdom and purpose of the Almighty is shown to us in the personage of Jesus Christ, who was the Logos, or Word made flesh, in whom God was reconciling the world unto himself, as we are told by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Thus the Almighty, the creator of all things, will ultimately achieve that which he has determined. He will in the future age manifest or show forth his glory in a redeemed multitude of Adam's race. The development of this multitude is seen in that which was related by Yahweh to the patriarchs, the everlasting covenant. Our hope, brothers and sisters, resides in the fulfillment of those great and precious promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Israel, and David. We, brothers and sisters, have accepted the invitation offered by Yahweh, namely the potential to become in the future a constituent of the multitudinous manifestation of the one eternal spirit. It's hard to talk about these things without some emotion. Our position now in this dispensation as brethren in Christ is one of unspeakable privilege. Unspeakable privilege and great responsibility. In recognition of this, there is no room for pride on our part, but rather ours, brothers and sisters, should be an attitude of humility. Humility tempered by reverence. If we believe then that we as the body of Christ now, his ecclesia, his espoused, have been called out as a people to bear Yahweh's name, if we hope to be heirs and joint rulers with Christ, it is incumbent upon us now, as Paul goes to great lengths to stress to the Ephesians, that in this our period of probation, to with all concerted effort, we are to strive to manifest those godly characteristics and attributes brought into marvelous view for us by Christ during the days of his flesh. We must, as Paul tells the Ephesians, walk as children of light. As the children of light, we seek not our own glory, but rather we seek to be counted among the meek and lowly in heart. Seek not to aspire to exalt ourselves, but we trust in Yahweh that he will grant us that which is a matter of promise. We seek not the material things of this life, what it has to offer, for we know they are fleeting. We seek first the kingdom, Yahweh's kingdom, knowing that all other things that we have need of will be provided for us in this lifetime. And indeed, brothers and sisters, are we not blessed far beyond that which we have need of? Second area which uh, we would like to consider in our, our thoughts this, this morning in terms of redeeming our time is our duty as stewards, or we may say custodians, and also as ambassadors. We, brothers and sisters, as those who have heard the same wonderful message of hope delivered by Paul to those of Ephesus and having an understanding of and faith therein, have entered into covenant relationship through baptism in Christ, we are considered by the Almighty as sealed or sanctified. This also Paul reminds the Ephesian brethren of in the opening of the letter. In the first chapter at verses 13 and 14, he says, In whom ye also trusted, after wit that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption 
of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. In this regard, I would like to read the very eloquent and insightful words of Brother Thomas in Volume 2 of Eureka, expressive of our very unique and privileged position before the Almighty, which, as we have said, should engender in us the spirit of humility and should engage us in service, in a lifetime of faithful service. He writes, the device, pardon me, the, the deity has a device which he has himself engraved upon his own seal, the counterpart or mark of which is transferred to the hearts of those who are impressible, and they become his sealed servants. It is written in Job 33, verse 16, the deity openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction. From this we may learn that the sealing has to do with teaching, and consequently as the seal of the deity is applied to the surface, capable of thinking, his seal is that which impresses his ideas or thoughts and ways upon the brains of his creatures. Now all the true servants of the deity are thus sealed in their foreheads, which hieroglyphically, hieroglyphically are symbolic of their intellects and affections. And we had another quote, but in the interest of time, we'll, we'll forego that. Uh, Paul gives us further words of great encouragement and comfort as he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, along these same lines, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. How wonderful it is for us, brothers and sisters, to be counted among those who are known to the creator, the creator and sustainer of this universe, to be considered as precious in his sight, to be known as his those in whom he seeks to work out his plan and purpose. Having accepted then the invitation of Yahweh and the great prospect set before us through the hope which we share in common as a sealed and sanctified people, we have taken on individually and as a community of believers the mantle of stewards or custodians and of ambassadors for the truth. As such, we are called upon to separate ourselves from the allure, that ever-present and imposing, daily imposing, as our brother Bob said this morning, the allure of that society around us, that which is with, inherent with its vain endeavors and pursuits, which conflict with the instruction of Yahweh and upon which men place such high regard. In our sojourn among men, our Heavenly Father does not require of us as we know that we live in isolation, remote from all people, to move to some other location and be just amongst ourselves. Rather, our separation, that which we are called to, is a separation of mind and deed. As Jesus said, we are to be in the world, but not of it. In this regard, the prophet Amos, in the third chapter, the third verse, poses to us the rhetorical question, can two walk together except they be agreed? Our priorities in a life of faithful obedience to the commands of Christ are focused beyond that which is extant in an amoral and godless society toward a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Our call to separation is the beginning of holiness, that which our brother Scott spoke to last evening. To seek after holiness is to combat and bring into subjugation all that is fleshly, and to elevate our minds to seek after that which is of the Spirit, to be as we have spent so much time concentrating on in the exhortation to the Ephesians, 
transformed in our minds and conformed to the image of Yahweh's Son, our Lord and Master Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 6.17, quoting from Isaiah 52, Paul unequivocally stresses, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, or sanctified, or holy, saith the Lord. As custodians of the truth, our separation from the world around us is one of both doctrine and of walk. We are to separate ourselves to Yahweh in a service that pervades every aspect, everything we do, every aspect of our lives. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 in the first verse, he says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And again in Ephesians at the fourth chapter at verses 23 and 24, he says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. We are to present ourselves to Yahweh as holy, acceptable, and to worship him in the beauty of holiness, because he hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. For as we are told, without such, no man shall see God. As we commented earlier, the tone of the 16th verse that we are focusing our comments on this morning is anticipatory of that which Paul feared would potentially befall the ecclesia at Ephesus. We read that very powerful language in Acts 20, descriptive of that which he contended with as he tirelessly labored and warned the Ephesian believers night and day, as the record says, with tears, to tenaciously adhere to that most precious message of life. The reason for the sense of this immediacy on the part of Paul is stated in the second part of the 16th verse of the 5th chapter, for the days are evil. Just as in the day which the apostle addressed the believers in Ephesus, there is no disputing that the society which we, in which we live, brothers and sisters, as strangers and pilgrims, is motivated by the incessantly wicked heart of man. Despite the contention of the humanist that purports the inherent goodness of man, the Bible puts forward a very different and definite perspective. As we read in the 17th chapter of Jeremiah, the ninth verse, the view of Yahweh leaves no room for misinterpretation. As we are told, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The wicked deeds of men seem to know no bounds, as truly we are inundated on all sides with those who seek after that which seemeth right in their own eyes. The world in which we live bears witness to the unfettered impact of humanism. Self-gratification is promoted in all quarters as the end pursuit. Our contention or warfare with this world as custodians and ambassadors is not a physical one, but is of a spiritual nature. So profound was Paul's concern for the welfare of the believers in Ephesus that he illustrates the method of their contending against evil by way of the analogy of a soldier armed for battle, that which also our brother Bobby spoke about this morning, as we read of in the sixth chapter. We are urged to put on the whole armor of God, that which may be a whereby we may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all to stand. He goes on to nominate these as having our loins girt about with truth, putting on the breastplate of faith, our feet shod with the gospel of peace, above all things taking on the shield of faith, 
and donning the helmet of salvation, taking in hand the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, whereby we will be better able to persevere through trial, overcome the challenges that life may present, to subjugate the carnal mind, putting off those fleshly tendencies which can so easily beset each one of us. And we are to, brothers and sisters, combat evil on all fronts. In the case of what Paul was addressing, this pertained to more insidious and serious danger that pre presented itself to those early believers. They were contending with that which pressed upon them within, from within as much as from without. In the Laodicean epoch of time in which we live, we must also regrettably wrestle with issues that present themselves from within, which would cause some to stray from right doctrine. We won't read it, but Isaiah mentions this in the, in the uh, 30th chapter at the 10th verse. He speaks of a asking for a covenanted people and asking for and seeking after smooth words. Paul also warns Timothy of this while he was in Ephesus in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, that there would be those who would come in their midst who would have itching ears, seeking after something new or an understanding, an enhanced understanding, opposed to that which the Apostle Paul had attempted so stridently to instruct them in, the gospel message. Brothers and sisters, we the same. We should seek after to understand and to contend for that which we have traditionally understood as Christadelphians, that which has been expanded upon, expounded upon, pardon me, and tenaciously defended by our pioneer brethren. Suffice to say that we as stewards or custodians of the truth must be ready always, as Paul says here in Ephesians, to refute error when it may arise. We are told also by Jew to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. We are told also by Paul in his second letter to the Thessalonian Ecclesia, the second chapter of the 15th verse, to stand fast and hold the traditions which we have been taught, whether by word or by his epistle. Not only, brothers and sisters, have we been vested with great responsibility to disseminate the tenets of saving truth to those of an impressible, willing mind to hear the word, we must continually strive, as we have noted here now, to maintain its purity. We have, brothers and sisters, a standard of care which must be adhered to if we seek to be acceptable, if we aspire to become Elohim in the age to come. Each one of us, as those consecrated to Yahweh, as those built up a spiritual house in whom he has intended to reside, each one of us represent a repository in whom has been entrusted the care for and nurture of the truth. In these waning hours of man's dominion upon the earth, ours is a call to strength of conviction and steadfastness. As Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, he says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. In an age of negotiation and conciliation, we would do well to heed that spoken of to Israel by the prophet Jeremiah. Where in the sixth chapter, the sixteenth verse, he says, Thus saith Yahweh, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul puts in perspective for us our commission as stewards and custodians. He says, let a man so account of, of us as of the ministers of Christ as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Continuing in his discourse in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, Paul in verses 18 through 20, reiterating for us the importance of the role of an ambassador says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. As ambassadors, our deportment or manner of life, or as Paul says, our conversation, should leave no room for doubt in the minds of those in whom, with whom we come in daily contact as to where our priorities and allegiances lie. As we redeem and wisely use our time, we should take opportunity when it presents itself to declare that wonderful gospel message, as Paul says in those words familiar to us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. As ambassadors and representatives of and witnesses for Christ in his absence, we are to be ready always to give every man that asketh the reason for the hope that lies within us with meekness and fear. As custodians or stewards of the ecclesia and ambassadors of the truth, we are to look to the eternal well-being of our brothers and sisters, to exhort one another in love, to bear one another's burdens, to offer a welcome ear and hand to those in our midst who are in need, to visit the sick and widows in their affliction, to contribute within our ecclesias, to nurture our children in the truth, and to be a light stand in a world that lies in darkness. Within our individual ecclesias, we each have a part to play, as our brother Scott pointed out last night. We each have something to offer, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, such that all parts of the body working together may in aggregate be presented as a chaste bride prepared for Christ. If we think back to the time of the children of Israel during their sojourn in the wilderness, and specifically the tabernacle under the Mosaic order, we will recall that the lampstand, we'll talk a little bit more about that in tomorrow's class, the lampstand in the holy place was fed with a special oil, and that it was the responsibility of every individual Israelite to supply such for its maintenance and continuance for the health of the ecclesia. Similarly, we, brothers and sisters, are called upon to strengthen our individual ecclesias by contributing in the spirit of self-sacrifice in whatever manner we are capable of, using our varied talents to the best of our abilities, thus providing for its continued health and sustenance. Our efforts and behavior within our individual ecclesias and the household can serve as the initial grounds for the refining of our characters and the application of our receptiveness to the molding power of the word. If we struggle to manifest godly characteristics within this context, how do we hope to shine forth as lights in a world of spiritual darkness? The final area and we have, I know we're going over time by just a minute, but we'll very quickly run through our final area of consideration in our, in our consideration this morning of redeeming the time. And that is what I would submit a vital need for watchfulness. 
That which we uh, quoted in Paul, of Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, and also in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, we along with they are urged to watch. The exhortation for the true believers of all generations is to watch. And that is one that is echoed throughout all of Scripture. The scriptural, the scriptural exhortation to watch, I would submit, is twofold in its application. Not only are we to watch the events of the world around us, that which our uh, brother Darrell will speak of undoubtedly this evening, but we are, which would portend the, the imminent appearance of our Lord and Master Christ and the reestablishment of our Heavenly Father's kingdom upon this earth, but we are also to watch, brothers and sisters, ourselves. We are to watch how we carry out our daily lives, our deportment, our demeanor in this, our period of probation as believers. It is that which signifies a maintaining of spiritual vigilance and alertness. It is spoken of by Jesus to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, pertaining to the last days of Judah's, Judah's commonwealth, and that which would befall the nation at the hands of the army of the Roman desolator, the little horn of the goat. It is the same exhortation given by the Spirit to the members of the Ecclesia in Sardis that we read of in verses 2 through 5 of the third chapter of the Apocalypse, as well as the injunction given by Christ in the midst of that which uh, speaks of the pouring out of the sixth vial of the wrath of deity that we find in the 15th verse of the 16th chapter, where we are given the exhortative promise to, to watch and to keep our garments our Lord's words that echo through the generations and now to us as those living under the period of time of the sixth vial, which we know will usher in the return of, thy, of our Lord, by implication tells us that we'll, there will be those we know of the household of faith who will not be found in a state of preparedness at his coming. They will have not kept their garments unspotted, as he says, and they will their nakedness and shame will be evident. Such have left their lamps untrimmed and devoid of oil. The exhortation then to us, brothers and sisters, is to, in patient continuance, be faithfully about the Master's work, always striving to, as James keeps our, says, to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. As Paul says in Ephesians, walking not as the Gentiles walk. In the 21st chapter of Luke, in verse 34, we are told of that which we are to be vigilant in partaking of, in, pardon me, in not partaking of. As Christ says, and take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged or overtaken, we might say, or burdened with surfeiting and with drunkenness and the cares of this life. Anything that can ensnare us in this lifetime, such that that day may come upon us unawares. We must each introspectively assess how we choose to occupy our time, how we choose to redeem our time, and to do so in a very honest and personal evaluation and ask ourselves, are the things that we are engaging ourselves in, the activities which we have chosen to set our hands to, are they contrary to the will of Yahweh? If a believer be overcome in these things, then for such the eagerness, the eager awareness of our Lord's return has abated. Let us rather take to heart Jesus' words in the Olivet Prophecy, where we're told in Mark 13, verses 32 and 33, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels that are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch, and pray, for ye know not when the time is.
Let us remember, brothers and sisters, that there is, despite the contention of some, and we should never use this terminology, delay. There is no delay on the part of deity of that which he has promised in his spirit word for us. That which we know as constitutes the duration of the kingdom of men are determined periods of time in the mind of deity in the outworking of his plan and purpose. We are not, as we know, privy to that exact time of our master's return, but we know from the prophetic word and can take assurance that that appointed time is set and we believe to be imminent. It could come at any moment. Thus, we are enjoined to vigilance and service, workmen that need not be ashamed, as Paul says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, found redeeming our time. We pray that we who are now espoused to Christ, if we on an individual basis wisely use our time and eagerly and patiently await his return, will collectively, upon acceptance, be constituted as the antitypical bride. We will be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. In way of conclusion, then, what way may we say regarding the exhortation and the warning offered to us by Paul in the 16th verse of this fifth chapter of the letter to the Ephesians? Redeeming the time for the days of evil. The days are evil. The supreme incarnate Yahweh, the author, as we have said, and sustainer of all life, has enunciated his plan and purpose with this earth and the populace, its populace throughout the ages, in that which he has revealed to us, that great privilege which we have come to a knowledge of, of his plan and purpose, what is revealed to us in his spirit word. He has condescended to offer the potential for each one of us of partaking of his divine nature for eternity. Those of us who would of our own volition separate ourselves to him in the manner of life and the way in which he has dictated to us in his word. We, brothers and sisters, have responded to that great and gracious invitation. In recognition of this great hope that we hold so dear, there is no room for pride, but rather ours should be an acknowledgement that we, who Paul says were once not a people, we who were prior to baptism, external from the commonwealth of Israel, aliens from the covenants of promise, have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. We are therefore to be ever cognizant of the fact that we as those who have been called according to election are not our own. We have separated ourselves to Yahweh. We have been consecrated to him to reflect to the best of our abilities the mind of his son. The attitude of the true believer, as we have said, should be marked by humility and reverence in a life of faithful service and obedience. As those sealed of the deity by the truth, we have, as we have said, been granted great privilege invested with great responsibility. Brother Williams tells us that we, there are great responsibilities that devolve upon us, commensurate with the great privileges and high honor to which the truth has brought us in relation. At the return of our Lord and Master, will, we will, each one of us, those in covenant relationship, be purpose, personally summoned to the Bema to be, appear before him as the righteous judge, to give account of that which we have engaged in during our period of probation. Time, we're talking about time this morning, time will have ceased for us to cure any, any lingering bad habits, to visit the sick and the widows, to improve our attendance at ecclesial functions, or to enhance our understanding of that which is revealed in the Spirit Word, or take the, that opportunity when it had presented itself
to attest of saving truth to those who would hear. Rather, what will be brought into very stark focus for each one of us will be how well did we discharge our commission as servants, as a sanctified people, as custodians, as a chosen people. How well did we bring our minds in conformity with our Heavenly Father's will? How well did we show forth or exemplify our faith through a pattern of good works? Did we, as we, uh, Brother Bob said this morning, did we submit ourselves one to another? Did we truly seek for the eternal well-being of our brothers and sisters? Did we make every effort to strengthen that which remains? Were we eager ambassadors for the truth that need not be ashamed? Were we vigilant and awake and watchful in our efforts to keep our garments unspotted from the world? Did we earnestly desire, did we earnestly desire the realization of that which has been promised to us. We believe with full assurance that we stand upon the brink of the return of Messiah. Prophetically speaking, there remains no major prophecies awaiting fulfillment prior to that which will come suddenly to an unsuspecting world plagued with darkness upon whom Christ's appearing will be as a thief. We have, and our brother uh, Darrell will, I'm sure, speak of this this evening, we have, brothers and sisters, and particularly for our young people, we have the sure word of prophecy, which Peter refers to as a, that we should take heed to as a light that shineth in a dark place. And Paul exhorts us in this regard that God is not the author of confusion. Yahweh's inspired prophets of old, as is stated in Ezekiel 38:17, spoke with one harmonious voice of the events that will transpire subsequent to our Lord's return. Let us not stray from that which we have traditionally come to understand, brothers and sisters. The exhortation, then, to maintain spiritual alertness and vigilance of service is, then, of the highest importance. Our Lord's return, as we have said, could come at any moment. Time is an irretrievable commodity. As our brother Scott mentioned last night, we don't know how long we have. The continuation of our lives is, at best, an uncertainty. Everything, as our brother Bob said in our previous class, everything in our lifetime that we have done up until now is in the past. We can't retrieve it. Therefore, let us, brothers and sisters, resolve and consign ourselves to the work of our Master. Let us, as the Apostle says in these words to us in Ephesians Chapter 5, verse 16. Let us be renewed in our resolve to buy up or redeem every possible opportunity to be about our Master's service. Might we then, brothers and sisters, be found ever vigilant, eagerly and patiently awaiting that day, such that we with confidence may say, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith, prayerfully anticipating to hear through grace the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful unto a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord.